Our patrons are about to receive a shipment of stickers and a very special episode that includes John and Zach talking about and to Francis Bacon. If those type of goodies sound awesome to you, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com backslash we eat art. Let's do the proper intro. I feel like Zach's looking at something on the computer, though. Like, I'm just making just sure that, like, I don't need anything on my, you know, I can see your blah, blah, blah. Okay. I am ready to go. So. I'm John Mejias in New York. And I'm Zach Smith in Los Angeles. This is Weed Art. A podcast where we talk to a real live visual artist about... But everything else on the table, if it's a coffee cup or a hammer or a plate of fried chicken and mashed potatoes or fish and chips, like, I'm just making it as kind of convincingly and as best as I can out of socks and enjoying how they develop a kind of wonkiness just from the materiality. And I think there's a sense of humor of like, yeah, this is mashed potatoes and fried chicken, but it's made out of socks. This episode we're talking to... Aaron Johnson. About... I've developed kind of a language that's partly biological illustration, it's partly influenced by porn magazines, National Geographic, and fast food imagery. And all of this stuff is coming together into like a style of figuration. And I've been with that for a long time. Where it's really started to come out was I was doing these paintings that I thought were about George Bush and about like the invasion of Iraq and about George Bush kind of perverting Christianity as like a means to wage these wars and about the marriage of church and state. So that became this content that was driving my work. Hello. Hey. Hey, Zach. Nice to meet you. You too, Aaron. I can see that big crazy painting in the background. There it is. Looks like a wolf is going to shoot this guy. Oh, and there's a lady shooting. That's a crazy dinner they're having over there. She's shooting somebody, but she's friends with the person next to her. But then that person's getting yelled at by somebody next to them. You can read that really well all the way from Los Angeles. I have really good eyesight. <laughs> when, they, when they're like on the magazine, they're like, oh, we're, we're doing a New York issue. I'm like, oh, it's easy. I just get on the roof and look over. You can see Russia from your house. Totally, yeah. That painting's called Turkey Pistol Dinner. Where did you get that name? Well, there's a turkey on the table and there's a, a couple pistols and there, there's a dinner. Wow. Turkey pistol dinner. That's what I assumed when I looked at it. Yeah. But it's weird that, you know, the same source that I thought was where it came from is actually where the, the, it came from. That must make yeah, it yeah. really easy to talk to your gallery on the phone. Like, hey, did you get turkey pistol dinner? Piece. And they're like, which one is that? Is that the one with well, the yeah. dinosaur <laughs> in the car? And you're like, no. Uh-huh. No, that's dinosaur turkey in a car. <laughs> I mean, the only problem is there could be a few paintings that have turkeys and pistols at dinner. Like that, that tends to happen a lot. That happens a lot? Is it a motif? Yeah, definitely. There's a lot of dinner parties, a lot of dinner scenes. Is that so you can put a lot of freaks? Put a lot of bodies around the table, yeah. Okay. A lot of stuff on the table. Right, and then you can put a lot of food. The gunfights. You can make the food look weird. Yeah, weird food is good. It's an art statement that's universally true. Weird food is good. It looks a lot like more well-crafted in real life. Than, like It looks like you have an idea, you know what you're doing, you have a little system, whereas online it looks more like haphazard crazy. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a good thing. I mean, it's a good thing if you're seeing it in person, and it's a bad thing if you're seeing it online, I guess. No, but. I mean, the thing about them online is, like, if you see them small, you go, ah, that's crazy. But then mm-hmm. I think if you look at any big one, you go, ah, this obviously took a lot of time to make something this crazy. Each thing is a different color and a different shape, and you only paint 
that shape, that color, and it's right next to something else that's a completely different color. Like, there's this new painting of a guy's head made of guns. Oh, yeah. You know. That one's called Son of a Gun. That's pretty good. I was pretty happy with that title. Yeah, it's good. <laughs> I thought that was clever. That was that was not just, like, guy's face made out of guns. Yeah, it's not clear that he has a father in the painting, so it so, takes right. a little bit of an intuitive leap. But it's clearly, like, you had to make the eyeballs that go on the guns. You had to make the guns. You had to paint them all separately, then construct mm -hmm. it. it. You know, it isn't just a sort of, like, wow, at once. Yeah, that one, that one was difficult. I mean, it was complicated to put together, for sure. Made a bunch of guns first as objects, and then tried to fit them into the format of that portrait. It was more complicated than some of the other ones have been. So when you had all these guns with eyes in the middle of them lying around the studio, did your friends come over and go, hey, you should just like take the gun, <laughs> and the gun by itself is a great piece? Oh yeah, all the time. And it's funny, because now I'm making sculpture. Like now I'm making sock objects. Like I hesitate to even say sculpture, just like little objects, you know? That's how it always they're starts, not like, man. They're not like heroic <laughs> sculpture. Um, they're just silly little objects. It was like an obvious thing that should have been happening out of the sock paintings for a while, especially sculptors come in and they love to be like, oh, why are you still making paintings? You clearly want to be a sculptor now. And I was just annoyed by that, of course. And I knew eventually I'd probably make an object. And now that I'm doing it, I love it. I've got like a whole batch of new sock burgers right now they're mm -hmm. sort of demonic burgers that have like big toothy mouths and lots of eyes and they're evolving like i think those sort of seem like something in between like a dermoid tumor and a burger which i think is a good place to be <laughs> it seems like a big factor is like i see you talking with a starting to get a little smile on your face mm -hmm. talking about them this sounds pretty important to that yeah you get this smirk happening yeah yeah when I mean, you're I, making I, your sock I monsters myself that's true <laughs> Sometimes people's artwork Important. is, you know, very close to them, a special bond, and your special bond is with hamburger monsters. Yeah. Hamburgers, they have, like, toppings. Each topping is different color. Yeah. Different texture, so you get, like, your relish. It's not as true of, like, Mexican food. You get Mexican food, and you have stuff on it, and you you add it, but you add it in little chopped-up pieces. But American food is, like, there's a template of, like, a burger or a hot dog, and you add these large, very distinctive objects to it. Yeah. Ah, bacon can just be right across it. There's something really satisfying about painting a hamburger. I was painting hamburgers long before I was using socks. Like, the socks is, like, a little bit more of a new development since, like, 2012 or so, but... I would say burgers and pizza go back in my work to like 2004-ish. Yeah, because it's kind of like each layer of exactly of uh, of painted object is also a layer that would be there in the cooking. Yeah, that's where I was going with it. So it's like the crust of the pizza, the sauce of the pizza, the cheese on top. It's like the way you layer things in a painting. Like some very something very satisfying about painting language and the language of like a layered food object like that. Where, where, did, where did you grow up? Yeah, you guys threw me off because I listened to a bunch of your episodes. You always start with like, where'd you grow up? This was good. And now we'll bring it to you though. I where? grew up in St. Paul, Minnesota. Uh, I was born there in 1975 and we lived like right down the street from the fairgrounds. And nice. then, then we moved out to the suburbs like when I was in like junior high. Okay. But it was a very kind of, very wholesome, like white bread kind of life. Like great family, great parents, have four sisters. Oh, wow. But we had some like interesting cultural layers to our family too, because my mom grew up in India. She was the daughter of missionaries. 
So I grew up as much as it was this generic American kind of culture. We had this other thing. Like when I had um, like show and tells in elementary school, it would be like my mom coming and showing slideshows of her with the tiger cubs that she raised in India when she was a kid, like bottle feeding her tiger cubs. Or it would be my grandfather coming with like a leopard pelt and a taxidermy toucan and these animals he had killed in India. So that was interesting. And I think a source of kind of like imagination and recurrent stuff that comes up in my work as well. When you guys would have Thanksgiving dinner, would they shoot each other? (laughs) Not so much. (laughs) We were like an anti-shooting at Thanksgiving family. So when you would eat a burger, would it scream at you? No, they were happy. They were like happy meals. But I mean, like, you said is a source of imagery, so I'm, like, looking at Were were some of your relatives' faces made of socks? Not so much, no. I guess the Indian uh, influence in my work came from being surrounded by, like, the earliest art objects I remember is, like, a Ganesha tapestry in the house. Some little Indian miniature things. But it comes from my mom's family living in India. It also comes from my dad who, when he was in college, studied Indian art history and studied Hindi and Urdu. So we grew up with a lot of these kind of objects and artworks around. Like I have a pretty good photographic memory as a little kid, like staring at a Ganesha tapestry and like getting into the little mouse that Ganesha is like riding on top of, I guess it's a rat, but those kind of details. And there was a point like before the socks, and I think the socks have been an intention to get less detailed and less hyper detailed and more into like a crude expressive aesthetic to get away from my impulse to be like really anal with little details and a little paintbrush. So going back to my earlier work, there were correlations with like Indian miniature painting or just like Asian influence in my paintings. Something that other people would always point out like when I was in grad school. I didn't necessarily pursue that or it wasn't very intentional about that, but I think I was kind of steeped in it. And Were these objects of the kind where, like, they're very animated on every surface? Yeah, definitely. That does seem like a connection. And then I can see in the early work there is definitely this linear care with the rendering of these sort of floating body shapes. Yeah, and, like, tiny dotting and targeting and everything with little halos and kind of psychedelic halos around things. Yeah, also the, the the way that you're using gold, you know, and red next to each other. Right. Yeah. I think my color is influenced by Indian painting a little bit too. Actually, when I was in grad school at Hunter, I got a grant to travel to India because I just wanted to go there. So I found a way to write a grant about it. Nice. The thing that I really came back with was just how there's every color paired with every color on top of every color everywhere. And it's like when you're on the highway following a truck, the trucks are all totally ornamental and detailed and the trucks can pull over to these like roadside stands. It's kind of like a tattoo shop for your truck and you can go get like a little thing added, little motif added to your truck. But I came back from that trip and my sense of color like really expanded or really opened up and got sort of very psychedelic, I guess. But there's also like very specific combinations. Like there's a, a way that you use purple and yellow. Yeah. Looking at like the pizza and some of the other motifs, like there's like a connection. Like I don't know. Do you know Ted Minio? Yeah. Yeah. Like he does that. And it so reminds me of this like New Orleans food sculptures of like outside of a restaurant. And he actually went to those places. You know, like he actually knew those places. 
That's a kind of like vernacular yeah. painting. But when mm. you're using it, you're using these like a certain lavender, which it's more like a dye than a paint. It's a little mm -hmm. bit washed out. And then this yellow, which again is saturated, but it's not the yellowest yellow you could get with paint. It's a little bit washed out and a little bit of white in it next to each other. It's sort of pastelled a little bit, just enough that it, it takes you to a specific place. There's one, one color pairing that's super consistent through everything I've been doing where it's like a straight red, it's called pyrrole red and mm. cobalt teal, like those two colors together. And I think mm. it's kind of similar to what you're saying about that purple and yellow. Oh, you put yeah. the opposites together and you get like a super optical buzz on, the, yeah. on those edges. I'm consistently amused by that. So I'm always doing that. Yeah, the juggler, the head count, may it please the oh, king. Yeah, yeah. That one, yeah, yeah. it's all about that. Yep. It also seems like your line goes from this sort of line that is definitely influenced by miniature painting, like a sort of attenuated, almost like a calligraphic line into a, like a line that's about the gesture of the paintbrush, like Yeah. The other thing about those paintings that has everything to do with those kinds of mark makings is that they're painted completely in reverse. They're painted in reverse on the backside of clear plastic sheeting. The small details first, building up toward the backgrounds, pouring on thin layers of acrylic polymer at a certain couple points in the process, creating a solid skin of paint that can be peeled off the plastic in the end and then mounted on something. So that's what I was doing for years, like before I started doing the sock paintings. I guess my work went through a big change, but I still make those reverse paintings also. Okay. But, but yeah, talking about those mark makings, it's like you can lay down a really thin line and then you can go behind it with another really thin line and then another one, or you can put down a dot and then go behind it with consecutive dots and get kind of crazy targeting. Mm -hmm. And it looks incredibly precise as if you did each one with like a razor sharp brush. But what you're really doing is just building up behind a mark and just letting the edge of the brush go over the edge. That's the way I was working for a long time. And that particular painting you're looking at, like they could be peeled off the plastic once they're finished and mounted on either uh, polyester net is what I usually use. But in that case, in that, that body of work in 2010, those are all mounted on American flags. So the, the canvas under all that paint is an American flag stretched on a stretcher. Where do you get a polyester net? Polyester net <laughs> comes from a netting, netting company. Good question. Yeah. <laughs> I started using scaffolding safety netting. So I'd just like walk around New York and see the neon orange safety netting and just take it. And then I started to think about doing them bigger and maybe not wanting my netting to be always like saturated in street filth. So I started ordering it. And once I started ordering it, I realized that there's like a whole array of different kinds of nets. Fish net kind of weaves, zigzag kind of weaves, all different kinds of colors and textures of nets. So they become integrated into these works in kind of like a design motif. And they also hold everything together right with that process. Okay, so you were born, you have this idyllic family in Minneapolis. Did you say St. Yeah, Paul? Um, St. Paul. St. Paul. So your parents, what did they do? My dad, after college, when kids started being born, got a job at UPS. Okay. And stuck with UPS through a whole career and went from being like a driver to like upper level management. Ah, back when a, they could do that. Yeah, it was a great job. Like my mom was able to be a stay-at-home mom, raise five kids, had like great benefits for the family, and now he's got a great retirement. So this is and like a real old-timey story we're telling. Yeah. Job like, security in the Midwest. <laughs> and right. your, your father was a package delivery man 
such that you could become a painter. Yeah. This is like the old America. Right. It's like a horse and buggy kind of thing. Rockwell. Wow. Yeah, the old days. Minnesota was a good place to grow up. I was really into nature. Both of my grandparents had cabins on the lakes up north. What you do in Minnesota in the summer is you go up north. So let's spend like <laughs> alternate <you're> weekends. <laughs> <laughs> you ought to completely maintain what the winter was like. Just not experience a summer. Well, you go to the lake in the summer. It's not cold up there. It's nice at the lakes. No, but, no. you know, you go fishing and stuff. Yeah. But I was like a kid we that collected all this stuff from the woods, like hornet's nests and, and like tree stumps and dead bugs. And I would take them home and draw them. And then I had a walk-in closet at the house that was like my nature museum where I had like all the nature objects and then little drawings I had made of them like mounted next to them. It was like my little museum project. So did each of your siblings have a creepy hobby <laughs> or were you the no, weird one? I think I was the weird one. I was definitely the loner and like painfully shy kid. I just didn't really need to like hang out with people so much. I was totally content to hang out in my nature closet with my stumps. Um, <laughs> did you draw them? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. draw them. Draw the stumps? Yeah, draw the stumps. <laughs> that kid paint on the hill on sometimes, like oh, paint okay. little paintings on the bottoms of toadstools, stuff like that. And that's kind of how I was. I mean, I was always drawing as a kid. And then in high school, I was taking art classes, but I was also really into science. So this kind of like nature and art thing came up with me all the way through my early years. And then when I went to college, I went to college as a pre-med student. I studied molecular and cellular biology at the University of Arizona. I was always painting like as a hobby, like painting as like this thing I love to do. I took one art class at the University of Arizona. So like if you're a pre-med student, you can major in whatever you want to major in. So I thought it'd be cool if I can major in art and still do this medical school thing. But I tried one art class and it was horrible. And I just thought art classes are not for me. So I pushed that idea far under the carpet and pursued studying biology, which I loved. But that art class story is kind of funny. So I took this class. The professor was fresh out of some New York City MFA program. I want to say like NYU or something. And he just got this professor job and he shows up in Tucson, Arizona, where it's like 105 degrees. And he's wearing a fucking black turtleneck and black pants. <laughs> and I was like, this is just the cliche of what an artist <laughs> thinks that they're supposed to be. There were some cool things. He showed us like David Lynch films. He didn't talk about much. He just like showed us David Lynch films. And then we'd have crits. And I was into like going to the junkyard and picking up like pieces of carburetors and shit. And in my backyard using like JB Weld and making these weird sci-fi looking flies. And then I would take those into class and he would just be like, you know, I don't know what I'm supposed to do with this. It looks like a fly. <laughs> End of story. I'm like, yeah, well, I don't know. I mean, that's, that's what it's supposed to look like. And I thought it was cool to make. There was just no conversation to be had with him. But the student that he really loved was a girl who would do no work and just like, when it's her time to present, walk up to a chair, turn it upside down, and then go sit down. And he would just like gush over that. <laughs> but we all thought maybe they were sleeping together too. So that was my early impressions of like what it's like to go to art school. And I was like, nah. You got the truth very early yeah. on. Yeah, that's what it was. So I was like painting on my own. I was studying biology and learning how like, DNA and genes and microbiology is the foundation of our cells and our life forms and really understanding like cellular mechanics and like how evolution works and super into that, really super fascinated by all of that. Yet here we are in your art studio. Yeah, it works so. out somehow. <laughs> so what happened? How come you're not Dr. Johnson? Yeah. 
Like I said, I was always painting. I think the paintings I was making in college are really funny to think back on. They looked like Led Zeppelin Houses of the Holy cover, maybe influenced by a little bit of Dali, because I had a couple of Dali posters above my bed. And I think he was probably the only artist I was looking at and maybe looking at like album cover art. But I definitely have some paintings of like rocks in the Arizona desert with, you know, women's bodies like slithering on them. I was really loving doing that. And by the time I was graduating, and I applied to medical school. I got accepted to just one school. I didn't get accepted to the schools I wanted to go to. And I think, honestly, in the back of my mind, I would, felt like I just didn't want to go at all. And I decided to like do this thing where I could defer my admission and take a year and maybe reapply to some other schools. And so for that year, I went to Honduras, to Tegucigalpa, Honduras. I spent a year there. And I had an internship where I was supposed to be working for a parasite doctor, and I showed up, I was supposed to be helping this Russian researcher research parasites. And I show up and it's this lab full of people that speak Russian and a little bit of English and no Spanish. And I was kind of going there because I wanted to like practice my Spanish and be part of the culture and like meet the people and experience stuff. But I was actually stuck in this lab where my job was to take these little Dixie cups of shit samples that were collected from all the villages around Honduras and make microscope slides of them. So I would spend all day with a glass slide and like boxes of Dixie cups making little shit smears on microscope slides and preparing those for research. Ah, but preparing the slides, yeah. that is how you make these paintings. Yeah, those were like little paintings, <laughs> weren't they? Because when you make a microscope slide, you mash a little clear window against something yeah. and then the edge becomes very sharp. A little piece of plexiglass. Something that's like a blob and hard to handle, like paint or a piece of shit, and then you push glass against it, it becomes mm -hmm. like this completely linear shape all of a sudden. They were like mini paintings, I guess. I never thought about it that way before. I was obviously like making these shit slides was not a lot of fun. Right. And thankfully, I was doing this for just a week when the grant money for me to do this project fell through. <laughs> and the Russian scientist was like, you know, you can't stay here. You don't have money to pay you anymore. And you but, like, you know, oh, good luck no. in Honduras. And I had, like, literally, like, $600 in my bank account. And this was, like, 1996 or something. And I'm like, well, what I'd really like to do here is volunteer with some social work group or something else maybe related to, like, medical field. And it just led to a sequence of things happening that led to me eventually getting to New York, which was working with a social work group with street kids, like homeless kids, and as a volunteer with this organization, I had basically no work to do. One thing I started doing was like being an art teacher with these kids, just out of like my own sort of initiative. But mostly I had like tons of free time on my hands. And then, you know, having only $600 in the bank wasn't gonna keep me there very long, but I was at one party one night and I met this older lady with a dog and she happened to be from Minnesota slash Germany before that. And she was telling me how since she moved to Honduras and got this dog, she hasn't gone back to Minnesota or Germany to visit her family for like 10 years because she didn't trust anybody with her dog. But she's like, I really like the way you're taking care of my dog. And, you know, you're from Minnesota. You seem like good people. Why don't you house sit for me and take care of my dog while I go for like six months? And she stayed away for nine months. And I had her house, which is in this like expat community with like three stories of like marble terraces. And it was in this expat little enclave in the center of Honduras or Tegucigalpa, which is like a super poor city, but there was this kind of rich hill. So I had this full on house there 
taking care of her dog and having plenty of time to be out in these weird marble terraces, like making these paintings. And uh, while there, I met this expat couple that were former New York artists, these kind of dandy guys that were always kind of dressed up and like gardening. And apparently they had art careers in New York City in the 80s with like Soho galleries. And then the art market crashed and they moved to Honduras and bought a big mansion-y kind of house and they've been there ever since and they would come over and, and like hang out and like see the paintings I was working on and they're like what you should really do if you want to do this is move to New York and I had never heard that idea before I didn't know the artists were in New York I didn't know that was a thing but I just decided to do that so that's what I did so I moved to New York in like 1998 and I've been here ever since so that classic story that Minneapolis Honduras mafia <laughs> hookup. Yeah, with the shit slides. Yeah, the totally. classics. You're making shit slides for one week, and then yeah. you're in Honduras <laughs> on the Marble Palazzo, right? Yeah. But you are working with these street click kids. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering where the darkness and frenzy in this art comes from. Yeah. So now we're in New York. So I moved to New York. I get a job as like a waiter. I have a tiny bedroom in the Lower East Side. I'm, I'm working at like a Spanish tapas restaurant from like 5 p.m. to like 5 a.m. kind of shifts where just the Spaniards in New York City come in at like midnight and start drinking sangria and dancing on the tables. And I'd go home to my little room and sleep for a few hours and then try to paint. At the same time, there was a Jackson Pollock retrospective up in MoMA. And this is how much I didn't know anything about modern art. I had never heard of Jackson Pollock at this point. And I go and see that show and I was totally mind blown. And I was like, I'm going to go to my little room in the Lower East Side and put plastic down all over the floor and start squirting paint onto canvases because this looks really cool. And pretty quickly, I got into this thing where the puddles and the drips that were falling off the canvas and spewing onto the plastic on the floor became something that I could like peel up and use as like a paint solid. And combining that with my interests, which were... Like I was doing a lot of drawings that were kind of biomorphic monsters. And I think they had something to do with my biological studies. They were the kinds of things I'd be drawing in like my lecture notes in microbiology classes. And now I had this new interest in like squirting paint and making these oozy kind of biomorphic forms. So I started doing that. And it was biomorphic kind of abstraction for a while. Where I would just shake up different mixtures of like reds and flesh tones in bottles and then squeeze it onto plastic and then peel up these kind of visceral kind of scabs of paint and then stick those onto canvases. But I had this idea for a while that serious painting would be abstract. So I still had sketchbooks full of little doodles, like full of cartoony kind of stuff, drawing people on the subway. And there in those, you would see the kind of pathos and like weird abject figuration that I love. Like that was really happening in the sketchbooks at that point. And then this painting technique was happening, which was like learning how to make paint skins and make these kind of paint blobs and use those as solids. And eventually those two things kind of merge. And eventually it becomes like a way of painting in reverse on plastic sheeting. And that step was like taking one of the drawings out of one of my sketchbooks, taping it onto the plastic, painting on the plastic using that as a template and realizing what I was doing was making a reverse image pouring like a spew, spooge of paint onto that and then peeling that up. Eventually that just moved like step by step into something like an evolved version of that idea. So technically, how did you figure out how to get the painting off the plastic without accidentally, when you're peeling the plastic away, damaging some of it sticking? Is that simple or? It peels off really easily. Like if you pour it thick enough and let it dry long enough. So it's just really thick on the other side. 
Yeah, it comes off like static cling, like mm. when it's dry enough. So I went to my, got my MFA at Hunter eventually. So I was in New York, like doing my own thing, exploring this painting technique for a while on my own, but feeling like really kind of isolated in New York, having no connection to any kind of art community. And I thought probably the thing to do would be try to go get an MFA and maybe I could teach with that, or maybe that would be a respectable way to like try to become an artist. So yeah, I went to Hunter and by the time I got there, I feel like I was already a self-taught painter, but then I got my MFA on top of that, which I feel like was a pretty good combination. So I go into Hunter like with that technique in place and it just really evolved and started doing really huge things with that while I was there. And Did you start showing in galleries at this point? <laughs> yeah, it was an interesting time to be at Hunter. So I was there from like 2002 to 2005. Mm-hmm. And at that time they were in the Midtown Manhattan building, like right by the Port Authority bus ramp. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you have like bus dirt flying through your windows in your studio all the time. That building was amazing. It was kind of like Wild West. Like I had at one point, like I swear, like a 1,200 square foot studio in there. It was insane because like the student next door to me didn't show up and I just took the wall down. Nice. There were people living in there. There were people like inviting roommates to live with them in there. It was very DIY and a huge student body, like 500 students there at once or something like that. And they would allow you to stay for four years at that point. So you could take classes half time, have your studio full time, have this cheap studio in New York and just really work. So I was in there just really working and taking advantage of that space stretched it out for almost four years. And I started showing during that time because we would have these open studios. And this was a time in the art world in New York where the Chelsea scene was full of these small galleries, like startup galleries that could get spaces there for cheap. And they were all looking for like the next new art star at the art school open studios. Hunter would get some people coming through open studios. My first dealer found me at an open studio. While I was in Hunter those years, I did two solo shows. One in Williamsburg before they moved to Chelsea, and then one in Chelsea, like the semester that I was graduating. Like I had to do my gallery show, and then I had to whip out some kind of a thesis. Nice. What gallery was it? It was Priska Yushka, and she was in Williamsburg, then she was in Chelsea, and she's since been closed for a number of years now. Jay Townsend. Yeah, Jay Townsend, Ryan Schneider, Deborah Hampton, Adam Parker Smith. A lot of good people. So all of a sudden you're busy and you're in the New York scene. Yeah, so it's like the, it. the right place at the right time for me, for sure, in terms of getting my foot in the door with galleries. So was it all smooth sailing from there? Uh, it's never smooth sailing. I don't think I say that. <laughs> you know, um, like, were there landmarks, like, once you got to showing, were there big strikes and gutters along the way? Yeah, peaks and valleys, maybe, yeah. But I've been showing consistently, like, after those few shows with that first gallery, then I got hooked up with Stuck's Gallery, also in Chelsea, did a few solo shows with them. It's been consistent. Like, But when you got to Hunter, you were a waiter. Was I still a waiter? How long did you have a day job? Yeah. Did you have other jobs in there? Yeah, yeah. So I was a waiter at various places. Then I was teaching kids art quite right. a bit. Like Where? After school programs in the New York City Housing Authority first, so in the housing projects. And then with a program called Studio in a School, where you go into public schools and teach. How'd it go? It was great. I really loved it. Studio school is kind of, it's intense because you're going like with an art cart. Yep. 45 minute sessions, like one classroom to another. So you were just basically like, uh, had to be an organized guy with a bunch of milk crates. Yeah, yeah. Get just like covered in tempera paint and then go do it again in the next classroom. 
It was good. I mean, I love kids' art for sure. I liked the after-school programs because you could do like a two or three-hour project, and they were much less structured, and it wasn't about some like you know board of ed requirements or anything. So yeah, I, I art handled a lot during those years at Hunter. I was teaching in the housing projects. I was art handling for mainly like Gavin Brown Gallery. After I graduated Hunter, then I was doing studio in a school for a number of years. Now it's been seven or eight years that I've been painting full-time pretty much. And I'm teaching at Hunter now too, a little bit. It's like I s- squeezed in as an adjunct and I'm, I'm like allotted one class. Yeah. But I love that. I would actually love to teach more. So about 2010, you quit your day job. Yeah. Like I always think like of people who study biology or like science can get a real misanthropic mm-hmm. view of people because you see like... Darwinian imperatives beneath the surface. Mm. Do you feel like that's... Okay, we talked about the technique a lot, and we've talked about your style. There's a zone where, like, caricature and expressionism come together, and caricature is a sort of a high-level thing. You look at something uh, that you have processed in politics or media in caricature, it's synthetic. You boil something down. Whereas expressionism is just like, you make a mark and the mark tells you what to do. And there are people who work in the overlap of those places, but it seems like you're in there. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. Part of it is very calculated, despite the fact these paintings look like you know? Like you decided to make something fucked up. You didn't just let your hand start working and your hand goes, let's make something fucked up. There's definitely like an intellectual, like, oh, let's put a sock here. This is one's going to be about big teeth. You knew sure, ahead sure. of time a lot of this visceral imagery is where you want to go. Yeah, definitely. It's various things. I mean, I think it's amusing. I've always been amused by like abject cartoons. Like when I was a kid, I was into Garbage Pail Kids and Mad Balls and things like that. Which one was Aaron? Oh, the Garbage Pail Kid? Aaron LeBaron, he's like a little kid flying a plane with like, you know, he's all dismembered (laughs) flying his little Red Baron pizza kind of looking plane. Which one was John? Do you remember? No, I'm very embarrassed to say that I have no idea. It's got to be a handful of them. And some Zach. It was unzipped Zach. Unzipped Zach. He unzips his brain and you can see his brain because it's unzipped. What was Justin? Uh, Disgusting Justin. Disgusting Justin. Disgusting Justin. (laughs) That's a good one. I was disappointed as a tangent when I, I went to a friend's place last week and he had garbage pail kids and I was going through them for the first time in many years and realizing that the same image will have like three or four different names. That you'll see unzipped Zach, but he'll also be called Yeah, like, he has a brother. That was sold as a feature, which uh, was like they were, quote, twins. Like, oh, you could get one and get the twin. But it was yeah, also yeah. kind of lazy, a way to get all the names in. Yeah, phoning it in. But it was clever they got all the names in, I thought. Yeah, so I mean, this is a good question. Like, where my affinity for, like, grotesque figuration comes from or why? You know, I just, I've always liked it, going back to childhood. And then I could also say, when I was studying biology, I would, like, draw these weird little monsters. It was just stuff that I just amused myself with. And then, like, when it starts to come into the paintings, I was doing, like, kind of biomorphic abstraction. And at a certain point, there's this leap where the figuration comes into the paintings. And that was a specific time, and it was like a political moment. It's like the George Bush presidency. Yeah. I had this idea, well, out of my biomorphic abstractions, images just started coming to my mind of, like, this stuff is going to get figurative. And the first 
thing it got figurative with was tanks, like military tanks. And they would have like biological engines and they'd be riding over like epidermal layers, biological looking stuff. And I would talk about these metaphors about the, the human flesh and the human skin as a landscape and war as kind of a human virus. Like this is kind of stuff that I was working through. I did. did you ever see Robert Arneson's sculpture, General Nuke, I think? I don't think so. I think it's Robert Arneson. It's in the Hirshhorn. I remember because, you know, what I grew up in Washington. So it was in the Hirshhorn Gallery in Washington, which has like many like very classical sculptures, impressionist sculptures. It's a sculpture-centric place. And then it had this one, and this is from the 80s. It's like just a caricatured face of a crazy general with a big mm. like missile for a nose. Yeah. And I remember as like a high school kid, it really just stood out as being like a crazy different thing. Yeah. This thing of uh, the, the sort of hyper gross out kind of faces and look. Mm -hmm. There's like a Mad Magazine had it. And then in the 80s, mm -hmm. there was like Mad Balls and there was like some of it in Pee Wee's Playhouse and there was like the Garbage Pail Kids. It never transitions fully to adult media. There's no a thing for grownups that's just wall-to-wall -wall expressionistically gross in that way. Like it's always yeah. for kids and it's something about like, kids wanna see things be fucked up. They're not like the environment they're asked to maintain all the time, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's the essence of the abject, like needing to break social order or needing to break from what's considered acceptable. Where it goes for me, how it starts to come into figures and like these hyper gross out faces as you're describing them is, so first there were these tanks and then I started buying around Port Authority these like triple X three packs of porn magazines, like really smutty, like really cheap magazines and like cutting out all the genitalia out of these magazines and then building those into the poured paint skins that I was making, building machinery out of that stuff. So it'd be tanks with dicks for cannons and like vaginas for the wheels of the tank, stuff like that. And then I took all of that right into massive scale kind of figures. And the faces would be built out of like porn collage and everything. And also fast food collage and also National Geographic collage. So it would be like animal parts mixed with hyper-sexualized human parts mixed with like taco nuggets and things that you could get from these magazines called Schwann's, which they have in the Midwest. And I don't think they have it around here, but it's like you can order these kind of frozen fast foody kind of foods for your stock, your freezer and feed your kids. But like nice glossy images of all this like really shitty food. So there's where like burgers and pizza and stuff first comes into the work. Like another function the magazines were serving for me was I didn't have a lot of skill of rendering really detailed stuff in this reverse painting technique yet. Like I was really learning it mm. and inserting those magazines was a way to have like a huge painting with a little area where there's some hyper detail to really pull you into it and like force you to deal with surfaces and force you to deal with it rather than just like a quick gloss over. From there, I was going to say where the real figuration starts, like the magazine cutout stuff drops out of the work at a certain point. And I'm from all of that stuff, I've developed kind of a language that's, you know, it's partly 
biological illustration. It's partly influenced by porn magazines, National Geographic, and fast food imagery. And all of this stuff is coming together into like a style of figuration. And I've been with that for a long time. Where it's really started to come out was I was doing these paintings that I thought were about George Bush and about like the invasion of Iraq and about George Bush kind of perverting Christianity as like a means to wage these wars and about the marriage of church and state. So that became this content that was driving my work. And I felt like the figuration was appropriate and was like a way to communicate ideas about that. And then that went through some shifts. So this was the work I was making when I was in grad school, which was really fun. Like it was a great student body, like a big mix of some people doing like really reductive abstract painting, like a lot of the faculty did. And then other interests, like people doing like more narrative figurative stuff. Like we would all go to the galleries. We were just, we were like walking distance to Chelsea so we could go down there and just like suck it all in. I remember going and seeing your shows there, Zach. People were really talking about it and really excited about it because you'd get out of these crits with like an old color field painter who's like, what the fuck are you doing with this, you know, story in your work? And we'd go see stuff like your work or, you know, a lot of other artists at that time, like Dana Schutz was having her first shows and Jules de Ballancourt, who was also at Hunter, was like having his first shows. So in these crits, like these these abstract painters would get up, we'd get pretty feisty. We had sort of like different camps at Hunter. And, you know, I'd be like, what are you doing painting these like three different colors of magenta squares when George Bush is like dropping bombs on Iraq today? <laughs> it, it was fun times. Were you into Peter Saul at the time? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I have a funny relationship with Peter Saul because I had one professor telling me that I should look at Peter Saul's work before I started doing anything like remotely figurative. He was looking at my like, biomorphic abstract paintings that I thought were really serious paintings. And um, he's like, you should look at the Harry Who and you should look at Peter Saul. And I looked at that stuff and I was like, eh, I don't think so. And then I kind of forgot about it. And then a few years later, I looked at it again. I was like, yeah, of course. Like, I don't know what that professor, what kind of foresight he had. I guess there was some wonkiness and some weird color in these abstract things that I thought were so serious. Like the body of work I applied to Hunter with, I thought it was like very serious, like abstract painting. But yeah, now I love Peter Saul. Peter um, Saul frees us all. Was he makes your it okay. teacher? Uh, Sean McCarthy. The Sean McCarthy's teacher. Yeah, 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 I knew I heard it on like one of your other episodes. We mention him a lot because we love him. He's so. the fucking best. <laughs> he has some Trump paintings out now. I've been waiting for those. I mean, at the same exact time in New York, that was what Sean and I were talking about every day with his work. Because like, mm. I'm an idiot, I would draw a tank on a TV. Like I'd literally have just like a, yeah. a drawing of my room with a TV and there's a tank. But- Makes sense. Sean was very much into the political grotesque of it. Yeah. But in his case, he was from Texas and his background was grotesque. Mm. And so his entree into it was like more like us like observing people and they're disturbing. But also, like, you were on 40 se- around 42nd Street at this time during the big change. Like, so you're seeing burgers. Like, yeah. every day you're seeing people get off the bus, eating their dribbly food. Mm-hmm. That part of town, even at that time, which is, it's after the big, when it was, like, just a sleaze pit. But it's still a tourist place. And it's just, like, this mashing together of these people just doing all their human things all day. Yeah, for sure. I think there's like a consumerist critique in my work, for sure. Maybe it's related to like spending time in the Times Square area. Yeah, I don't know. I moved to New York and started observing people on the subway. I would do these drawings on the subway. They're just like turn out really fucked up because you're on the subway and it's shaking and like people are moving and people catch you drawing. And 
I just, I don't know, like, get off on, like, drawing people looking really disturbingly fucked up. And I, I think there's something important about that. Although I just might be, like, immature and adolescent, and that might be all it is. No, but if you look at TV and everyone's all skinny, and then you go out to 42nd Street and nobody looks like on TV or the movies. Yeah. If true. you're conscious of it, it's like, it's so fucked up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that dynamic of, like, what you do see in media at that time and now more and more... You do see grotesque things in media, but the style of them is not grotesque. Like you'll see like a three-hour special on John Benet Ramsey with just like human beings behaving extraordinarily poorly, but it is still looks like TV. It looks like people being photographed with boom mics and you can hear them. And the style of it does not reflect how grotesque it is. You know, so it's sort of like the the skin of it doesn't look the way it feels. So I can see how that would like build up a thing of like, well, why can't things look like the way they are? Right, right. Yeah, and I was interested in like fast food as a metaphor just for like the idea of the American dream that here's this burger and it comes in a Happy Meal package. It's this happy food and it's slick and it's, it looks like a toy and it's a spongy bun and like bright colored mustard and bright colored ketchup and this patty of meat. And then you think about what happens in the slaughterhouses in the meat industry and how it's this kind of subverted horror, this subverted brutality. I think there's so much of that in the history of this country. The fact that we were founded on the genocide of the Native Americans and the fact that we had slavery and the fact that there was this idea of like manifest destiny to come to this nation as like God's chosen people who are here to convert the Indians and to take over this blessed land. But it's really a story of like murder, rape, pillage, and taking advantage of the other and the media and the sort of spectacle of consumerist life is a spectacle to kind of subvert all of that. If I'm going to think about my work in like a deeper level of like where all the abject comes from, I think that that's a pretty good guess. They are very planned. Hmm. 69 Reasons I Love America. <laughs> yeah, and it, yeah. In this painting, there's some tigers with their faces turned inside out on either side, a giant alligator on American flag. It looks like the Statue of Liberty and Jesus are 69ing. Yeah. The alligator has a tongue, and then there's a pig head and a witch head, and then like a dude's head who I can't identify, all in the middle of the alligator's mouth. Just some standard severed heads. Well, one's a pig, one's a witch, and one's a redhead. Sounds great. So I don't know if those are the standard severed heads, but all that had to be planned in advance. I mean, it looks like like if you were cutting and pasting on the internet, you could be like, ah, I'll do this crazy thing, and then this, and then this. Yeah, yeah. But to make this as a painting, you had to stop and be like, you know, I've been thinking about exploring giant alligator mouth with 69ing Jesus with Statue of Liberty, and you had to like plan it out. So these processes you're describing are not in the background like you are thinking pretty straight up about them yeah and for then sure. it looks like when you execute the paintings they are essentially a physical elaboration on a theme that you know is that's what this painting is sure about, yeah you know? yeah i mean there, there's there's a lot of intuitive choice making in these paintings for example so like where where the iconography comes from in that one before there was Jesus 69 in the Statue of Liberty, in that little painting, a few years prior, there was a giant painting 
on an American flag that was Jesus fucking the Statue of Liberty. And I felt like that was my painting that was like the depiction of the marriage of church and state and this kind of grotesque version of using religion to manipulate the masses that George Bush was enforcing upon the populace. So I made a giant painting of that and I had it mounted on an American flag. So that just becomes then like part of my repertoire. And now Jesus and the Statue of Liberty might appear in a lot of other paintings, including this one. And in terms of the process, like how planned out they are in the beginning, I can sketch out little areas bit by bit and then get into the painting of it and do like this area and then respond to that. Okay, so we've got Jesus and Statue of Liberty on the tongue. What should be happening down in this corner of the painting and then figure out something for down there. But there is sort of an arsenal of motifs and like repeated iconography that I tend to go to. Um, I think it was our forum that mentioned, like, it's all about the deplorables. Like, yeah, them, yeah, is, yeah. Is there yeah. truth to that? Are you looking at these That's deplorables? That's a funny situation. So to summarize the, like, George Bush years of my work, that show where the paintings were all on American flags, that was the end of the George Bush years. It was, like, September, October of 2008. It was, like, it coincided with when Bear Stearns went down and the whole economy collapsed. It was, like, my farewell to George Bush and uh, George mm -hmm. Bush America and that whole era. Prior to that show, I thought that I had the same political ideas in those works, but the response was not getting it. Reviews didn't get it. There was too much frenzy of psychedelic color and not enough specificity. I think it was something that I was learning at that point was that you have to hit viewers over the head with content. And for that particular show with the yeah. American flags, I decided to just be as didactic as fucking possible. So. There's the big Jesus and Statue of Liberty painting. There's another one that's like a camel with Uncle Sam riding the camel. Um, there's, <laughs> there's, you got it, everybody. <laughs> yeah, there's uh, George Bush right. based on one of the Goya disasters of war where the, it's like the general with the big bat ears coming out of his head, sitting down to a pile of steaming severed heads and eating those. But there's a, an interesting dynamic that you've just described where not only does the content describe a bunch of stupid people, but the way that you have to present the content reflects a <laughs> stupid audience that won't understand well, the work unless you do it that way, yeah. at least on the surface, which honest <laughs> to God, sure. I know exactly what you mean. You have to like repeat a motif over and over again and make it very mm -hmm. big and put it in the title in the 2000s in order for someone to walk away going, well, right. it's mostly about ovals. And this may be an artificial expectation that we have from looking at famous artists in the past, and we're looking at their monographs when they're dead, and we see the art historians like really mm. digging into their work, and we expect that. Or it might be just yeah, that people at are getting so stupider. Breezing in and out of the gallery. I'll blame it on my own work too. Prior to the American flag paintings, there's a lot of optical stuff going on. There'd be a big four-legged or like eight-legged creature with an op art vortex in his belly. And I was thinking of that vortex as this insatiable consumerist hunger. But people are just gonna look at that and see op art. I had to just make it a little bit more straightforward, right? Then we can fast forward to your question, John, about like this most recent show where there's an art forum talking about the deplorables. This was an interesting time. Like I had a solo show here in New York, Joshua Liner Gallery in April. It had been on the calendar for like nine months. Last summer, I knew the election was coming up. 
I had this bad feeling that, you know, coming from where I'm coming from and the way I had handled politics in my work before, what I would have to do if Trump won was make a bunch of big, horrible Trump paintings. And I had drawings. I had mainly had just horrible visions. But I was like, yeah, he's not going to win anyway, so fuck it, and it doesn't matter. Before the election, I was working on a painting. I think I was asking myself a question, like, what's happening to the soul of America? And this was one of my reverse-painted, super-detailed acrylic polymer paintings. It's like a pickup truck on a road that's coming into a roadkill crash with a deer, and the deer's, like, being dismembered. And the couple driving the truck is crashing through the windshield while they're staring into each other's eyes, having this last kiss as they die. This kind of like romantic idea of idyllic Americana, like a ride in a pickup truck on a country road on a moonlit night, like making out with my lover. And in the back of the pickup truck, there's a country band playing. All this is happening in that painting. But I feel like that painting was leading up to the election. I was working on it after the election. I was finishing it. And I was like, well, this painting was about this crash course that we were on. And then I was like stuck with this thing of, all right, now I'm going to go into the studio and make these big, horrible Trump paintings. And I would come in and start to sketch those up and have to immediately stop. I just couldn't do it. I was kind of traumatized by the whole thing. Didn't want to let that take over every moment of my thought process. I thought what I really wanted to do was escape and came into the studio with the idea that wouldn't it be interesting to make some sort of escapist motif paintings? Like there's already this one that's the truck on the road doing this American pastime. I could make a painting that's about escapism and what it, would that be? It would be like going fishing. So I made that painting as a giant sock painting. So it's six feet by nine feet, I think, on canvas and a lot of acrylic paint and socks. Relief forms that are all made out of socks. A lot of fish swimming around the bottom. They're all made out of socks. They have this really cool, uncanny joke about realism that's attractive to me. And then this kind of rickety boat that's all made out of socks. The wood paneling of the boat is kind of suggested by the weave of the socks. And then there's this couple in the boat where she's got this splayed open toothy mouth and he's got this big kind of phallic nose. And they're just chilling in the boat, drinking wine and eating cheeseburgers and pizza and going fishing. The fish are eating the fast food. There's like vultures and birds of prey swooping in to get stuff. And I felt like this was the most lighthearted sort of subject matter I could get into that would maybe be an interesting way to talk about that thing of living in a culture where there's all this like subverted violence. So this is on the edge of that cusp of, yes, you can see the violence. Yes, you can see their faces are horribly distorted and torn up, but mainly it's just funny and it's a good escapist kind of painting. And then the rest of the show became also pieces like that. Of course, I knew while I was making the work that it looked like this could be a critique of Trump voters. And it's not what I wanted to do. I've tried to be very empathetic and open-minded about like, who are these people that are voting for Trump? I think that a lot of them are voting for him out of places of suffering and not having jobs and so forth, in combination with all the horrible reasons that people did vote for Trump. But I didn't really want the work to be read as, this is a critique of Trump's America. But then that art forum review came out and said exactly that. You don't have the touch for that. You have a cowboy shooting an American eagle where death is at his breakfast table and behind him on TV yeah, yeah, is yeah. football and the TV right. is being held up by a that, First that Nations prior. individual. That, was, that, that like, was a couple years ago. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. but that's a Tony no, I hear you. But what's going to have to happen is the paintings where I just go all out for it and make those super political, super Trump era paintings. But I thought it was cool to make this kind of escapist, lighthearted, feel good paintings. 
Is pancakes and coffee a pancakes lighthearted and coffee? painting? No, to but you? that's after the show too, and now I'm just like, there's another little okay. shift. So like that that particular show was like, this is the moment that Trump just got elected, and what the fuck am I going to do with it? I don't want to have a gallery full of Trump paintings. I just don't want to do that. I don't want to do that right now. Um, I have subverted ideas yeah. in some of these paintings. There's one that's called Hot Tubbin, and it's a bunch of people hanging out in a hot tub. And right. I had this, but her head yeah, yeah. is made of guns. <laughs> um, I mean, like, right, right. her head's made of guns, um, That's dude. probably the one that I felt was crossing <laughs> the line of explicit critique of Trump's deplorables exactly because I started thinking of that one as the basket of deplorables. They're sitting in a hot tub, but it also looks like they're sitting in a basket. This is the first time I've spoken yeah. this thought at all because I wanted people, if they were going to get it, to just get it. But now it's time for people to listen to this podcast and, and get it. Um, <laughs> so then after that show, what I've been doing, and I think Pancakes and Coffee is a good example of this one. Where that came from was while I was making that solo show, I had to make one piece for an art fair. It was like the art on paper fair. So I made a big painting on paper and I decided since this is like a one-off, this is where I'll do my crazy Trump painting. So I did this Trump rally. And that's the way that I was picturing him as this is like vortex of teeth in his stomach that's just ready to like fucking swallow the world in this vortex of greed and hunger. That's the way I was picturing him. That's the way I was sketching him. And I thought, well, I'll make that painting since I'm doing this show right now where I'm not acknowledging this urge to paint Trump. I'll just get it out in this one piece as a one-off. So it's a Trump rally. This is like super hideous Trump monster standing on a stage doing some whacked dance. He's got no pants on and his penis is the size of a hair. And his shadow is a swastika. If you look closely, it was at one point a really sharp swastika and I left the studio feeling like really traumatized by even just the, the image. Being a swastika guy. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> I had to come in the next morning. I had decided I was gonna get rid of that swastika shadow, but then I realized I could just kind of Talk tuck it down. under the edge a little bit and put some curvature on it that reflects the shadow of his body a little bit. And then you can still have the swastika when you find it, but it's not so in your face. And then there's a whole crowd of freaky looking little Trump voters and they're in the background. So that was a piece that I felt was really successful in kind of a painterly way, in a way that I'm interested in approaching composition and process right now. So now I'm doing some more of those. The pancakes and coffee is one of those. It's funny, there's a couple more of them in my studio right now. These are acrylic on paper. And the way I'm working on these is like, they're not pre-planned at all. And I'm slobbering some acrylic paint onto a piece of paper. And I'll have another piece of paper hinged off of it so that as I'm slobbering paint on the one piece of paper, I can blot it off with the other one. And it's just like making a lot of paint blots, making a big mess, wiping areas out, blotting again and blotting again and blotting again, and then like starting to look for body parts, trying, trying to make sense of it. Um, yeah, it looks like almost anything, like you, you take these abstract shapes and you're yep. like, okay, well, this will be a face and this will be a face. And then the faces become very grotesque because they're, just sort of yeah. whatever the paint so, does. And those are interesting. So like the, the, the piece that's hanging off that I'm using is this, this so-called like blotter. By the time the one that's the focused piece is done, then the blotter is hanging there with like some kind of artifacts of a lot of different painting moves and different, different choices that is already the start of the next piece. So this is a way that I'm starting to work now that's becoming, I mean, it's the main thing I'm doing right now as of this month. Um, 
as of these past few months. But um, it's what's funny about these is in some of these, like the Trump rally one, that was meant to be Trump, clearly. In in Pancakes and Coffee, I, yeah. that was also going to be Trump. I also I just kind of mutated that head and got rid of the Trump hair, and it's no longer specifically a Trump. But I feel like it's these politicians slash oligarchs slash ringleaders, like having this kind of spectacle. It's like a spectacle of cannibalism. And it's like a, a pancake rally. Like all the people are there like watching this like dismemberment and pancake eating going on. And just, I think like an absurdist reaction to what's going on in the world these days without being too specific. There's also like, this a, was about Trump. there's like yeah. an Ensor vibe. Like these guys in the back are expressionists figures of a similar color palette in some cases yeah got little yeah i was thinking about insor a lot especially he has like some beach scenes and then in those beach scenes there's like lots of little people stacked up into the composition on their beach towels some of them are skeletons some of them kind of imply to be like eating each other definitely thinking about insor in those works but what's funny is like trump will like appear in these pieces when I'm not trying to paint him like some kind of a menace. He's just there. Like there's one over there right now that, that I really liked how the head was looking and it was coming out of the like blotting and smearing and blotting and smearing process and arrived at a head. And then what the painting really needed was this yellow in this area, which becomes his hair. And then it, it, it became this kind of side profile of Trump and he just kind of appeared. <laughs> and I was like, it's not what I wanted this piece to be, God but damn I, it. <laughs> I'm deciding right now if that's what it's going to remain or not. Like, and he's wearing a suit, so that puts him in that role. So my question right now is, like, let's sit for a while. I might change his outfit and like, turn him into like a farmer and like, keep the Trump head, but put him in like a plaid shirt and overalls. And I think that could be a good idea, but I also feel like just like letting this thing be what it became on somewhat of its own accord. Right now, do you want to avoid Trump characters and commentary, or do you want to dive in, or where are you standing with uh, this? I want to do Trump. some. I want to do some where I definitely really dive in, and I think that would be a vision that comes and that I can't avoid, and that I just really want to do. Hmm. I feel like everyone, we're all making our. Trump era works right now. Like I whatever, haven't done it yet. Whatever it is, though. Like, whatever you're making. Yeah. Yeah, well, you are making a big comic about assassinating hey, the president. It's true, I mean, but I haven't, I haven't made a caricature of Trump in a long time in tiny hands. I haven't done anything that obvious yet. I've been tempted to a few times. I can't fucking draw that guy. There are a couple people that I could do, but they're always end up being obscure people that have a meaning to me. I did W a couple times. But it's just him. It's just his head on TV. And then I did Arlen Specter because he was like the last pro-choice Republican. And he seemed like a person who had a lot of narrative going into his head. He was the guy that shows like, this is what a political party used to be. And it is now turning into a circus that this guy cannot handle. And that seemed like he had a charged image. But for me, like Trump is, he's too symbolic. And I think in your work, you take something that has like a symbolic charge mm. and that's the start. And then the painting is on top of that. Not necessarily literally, but like you start with a symbol and you're like, now we'll make a painting. Whereas I think like in a painting like mine, like yeah. the symbol's the end. You know, I'm just like, in the end, it's just going to uh -huh. be Trump. And people go, oh, it's yeah, that it's guy. Yeah, it's tricky. Oh, I yeah. do want to ask about socks. Oh my God, that's, I had that in my brain too. 
Tell us about socks. Yeah. So if you go to his website, it's got like contact, Instagram, paintings, 2004, 2009, 2011. And then one of the categories is just sock paintings. They're their own thing. They definitely fit in with the work. But I don't know if you've heard, but there's like so many socks. It's like that King mm. Missile song, Socks. Have you ever heard that song? Tell us about Socks. Wait, yeah, Your yeah, journey yeah, yeah. with no, Socks. I've heard that one because someone sent <laughs> Hold it to on me. Yeah. Here it is. <laughs> so many socks. I have so many socks. How did like, you get into socks. making art with socks? Um, okay, yeah. That's the question. <laughs> so rewinding a little bit, there's like the really political works that were about kind of George Bush America. There are the paintings on American flags. There was a period after that where I get into kind of still using that reverse painting technique getting into kind of art historical homage and stuff like, like recreating a Rubens painting or recreating like particular art historical paintings that I love and feeling like I wanted to get away from like the extreme political and also getting into paintings that I thought were more like personal and poetic and getting into some pieces that were about like love and death and like relationships and romantic love and mortality and like a meshing of those feelings But at the same time, getting kind of tired of like always working in this one process that is like a very kind of restricted way that you work. Like those paintings are small details first, building up to like middle details, pouring on layer, getting into the background. And then when it's done, it's done. You peel off the plastic and it's just finished. And it became like the experimentation in that process was kind of gone. I still love the process and it's like a really efficient and interesting, I think, way to make a painting. But I wanted to do something different. And like the obvious thing when I started experimenting with other things was like to stick stuff on canvases. Like I was in Mexico and I brought back a palm leaf and I stuck that onto a canvas and it became a bicycle wheel. And I made a painting around that with some other stuff stuck on it. It's collecting debris off the streets and stuff. And then one day I had an old sock on the studio floor and I stuck that on a canvas and there was literally like a eureka moment of like this is really stupid it's kind of a smart clever painting joke it's like a pun for a brush stroke like here's this ready-made thick impostoed brush stroke i had even got some oil paint for the first time ever because i'm like if i'm gonna do this like, this like impostoed build-up surface stuff i should get some nice like thick oil paint and i hated it and i got rid of it right away like i sold it for like half the price of what i paid for it to another painter because i don't know like oil paint and i just don't get along Um, So then it just became this kind of joke about painterly impasto and the thick, juicy oil paint reproduced by a trashy, worn out, like whole torn piece of old sock. So then the entire year of like 2012, I did like nothing but sock paintings and they were all sort of like six feet by seven feet or something. And I could whip them out pretty quick. Those ones were, they were kind of all large heads, like semi-abstract heads. They'd have like a big pair of eyes and a big mouth. But it was just like throwing the socks on, like throwing a lot of paint on and feeling like this kind of painterly freedom that I didn't have in the other work. And also just kind of enjoying the the process. Like I was collecting socks from people. So I'll post on social media, send me your old socks and I'll send you a little drawing. And they're just like little um, memo, like legal pad sheets with Sharpie on them. They take like five minutes to draw. So everybody that sent me old socks would get a drawing in the mail. So there became this kind of the commodity exchange, trying to allow people to have like a little piece of art that's like outside the market was interesting. Sourcing socks from people and like getting these little artifacts from people's lives was interesting. And feeling that sense of collaboration and that these paintings were dependent on this incoming stream of sock packages arriving at my house every day was interesting. I 
piled a mountain of socks in the corner. People were sending me socks like by the hundreds. Yeah, I did that for a while. And then like, it just kind of felt like there were things missing in terms of narrative, in terms of figuration that I really wanted to get back into. And then I started doing the reverse paintings again and continued doing the sock paintings together, kind of in tandem. And now a few years later, that figuration has kind of come into the sock paintings in its own way. Well, it seems like what you eventually did, which was very effective, like, I don't know if they were in chronological order, but like, at first they're a brush stroke and there's a bigger painting, but eventually in the faces, they become the important stroke. Each sock, they become in a sense more about the sock shape. Each sock is forming like a specific either wrinkle in the face, like a structural part of the face or a tooth or like something very specific. And so you can see the really the reason for that gesture. The gesture isn't just a texture, that's that forming shape. Like when you hit, you know, like a, almost a Francis Bacon, one little painting stroke becomes so important mm. because it says like three or four things that are very rendering. And then in the bigger paintings that use a ton of socks later, it's like you manage to put enough small details you put a bunch of those paintings where the sock is a big deal together, you know? So it's like in Ship of Fools, it's every single head, clearly like each sock is expressing one gesture of the face. Like there's like a pirate guy in Ship of Fools at the top, the whole top of his head is one sock. And then there's like a green monster guy and like his nostrils are two specific socks, not just like a monster on top of a sock texture. Yeah. Like it becomes more and more about that material, like what the material does by itself without yeah, paint. Yeah, I'd say that's a pretty good you know? like formal analysis of those works. <laughs> but I do have an MFA. But is there a color of sock you prefer over another or a brand um, of sock? Lately they get completely painted over pretty much. Okay. Early on, I was, I was into using the patterns a lot, like ready-made painting patterns. But lately, I like just your basic like tube sock with the ribbing at the top. It could be white or black or like whatever color. Those are really useful. Those are the socks that have the most of that sort of paint stroke reference, the ribbing at the top of those socks, and they're really thick. Like in the Gone Fishing painting, each one of those fish is made out of like one of those types of socks. And then the fins are made out of like cutting out those pieces of the ribbing. So that type of sock, like just a very generic sweat sock is super useful. And I think of like most of the boat and most of the waves are also made of that type of sock. And then cool pattern socks, as much as the patterns are cool and I wanna maybe work with those. What they're really good for is turning them inside out and you might have like an argyle that's smooth on the outside or whatever kind of pattern. Like people send me bizarro patterns or images on their socks and you turn it inside out and then there's all the like stringy stuff on the inside. That stuff's great for texture. So I use a lot of that. That's what's going on in Son of a yeah, Gun. He has a tie exactly. that's all raggedy with like a fluorescent thread through it. I guess that's a sock turned inside out. Yeah, some like big strings, some gnarly stringy stuff. You haven't gone to a Goodwill yet and done some <laughs> sock picking? No, some people have done that for me. Some people have like gone to a Goodwill and like sent me a giant box of socks. And my mom goes to thrift stores in Minnesota and like has them save all the socks that come in and they just like donate them toward my project. She sent me a 40 pound box of socks last winter. This must be a dream come true for a mom. (laughs) 
because she could yeah. just give you socks and you'll like it. I think every parent wants to give <laughs> yeah. children socks. That's like a basic instinct. Like, you know, it's Christmas and you reach into your stocking and it's like socks yeah, and you're like, yeah, yeah thanks. But like, I want appreciation because your feet <laughs> will be cold without me. She could just infinitely send you socks and you just yeah. keep getting like, thank yeah, you, like every time. She loves it. She'll send me like care packages, oh like things she bakes and has like tons of socks in the box with it. You're the best for wanting the socks. That simplifies the relationship yeah. so Rose much. Best son. Wow. Mm -hmm. Right? Totally. That sounds like a name of one of your paintings that's disturbing. Yeah, and I've been, I've been thinking about making a painting that's called, like, Sorry, Mom. I mean, my mom loves my work, and, like, my parents are both, like, super Sorry, uh, mom, super supportive of it. I was nervous the first time they came to New York to see my work, and it's, like, the Jesus fucking the Statue of Liberty on, like, a huge American flag. But they're, like, politically very liberal, and they get it. One thing about the sculptures I want to ask, I wonder if for you... I could see them in two ways. One of them is, oh, right. I can make a sculpture. And you're like, what What can I do with socks? And you're just exploring. The other way is that you're actually hmm. getting more minimal on purpose and that that's actually a direction that you're like, okay, I'm right. just making a hammer out of socks. And it's like two or three gestures and that might be where I want to be right now. Yeah, I think that's an interesting thing that I've been thinking about. Like, I'm wondering whether this will turn into, like, a giant cornucopia installation full of a bajillion objects, or whether you're like, no, all we have is socks now, so I'm just going to make a little thing, like yeah. a coffee cup that's just socks, and that that's it. Yeah, basically, I started doing the sculptures just because, of you know, it was a natural outgrowth out of the paintings, but also because... For this solo show I did last April, I knew schedule-wise I was going to be able to cover the walls with paintings no problem, and I would still have time to work. And the way that that space is, like, it would just kind of feel like I could activate the center of the space with a table of objects, and that would be cool. So got all the paintings done, and then I had like maybe, I mean, not even a month really to like make some sculpture. So I just whipped these things out. But like the thing you said about the hammer being just a hammer, it's true that the hamburgers have faces and mouths and they're little demon burgers, but everything else on the table, if it's a coffee cup or a hammer or a plate of fried chicken and mashed potatoes or fish and chips, like I'm just making that object, like making it as kind of convincingly and as best as I can out of socks, enjoying how they develop a kind of wonkiness just from the materiality. And I think there's a sense of humor of like, yeah, this is mashed potatoes and fried chicken but it's made out of socks. Like I like that kind of pun and that kind of silly, playful sense of humor in them. But what I said also about minimalism, it's like I do come into the studio sometime and I feel like I'm surrounded by a million little faces with little demon teeth and I would love to sometimes get away from that. I think some of the sculptures are getting away from that in a way that's totally satisfying. So I could see more of these table spreads where it's like some of the objects are anthropomorphized and have a little mouth or a little slithering tongue but the rest of them are like just objects i think maybe that duality is interesting they kind of remind yeah. me of uh, klaus oldenberg's sculptures where he would just be like i'm gonna make a thing and then just the wonkiness of the way he made it becomes like a yeah object yeah they sort of feel like mini oldenbergs you know in a way 
I've heard a little version of what you said from so many Hunter students, which is there's camps mm. at Hunter and they fight with each other in this sort of like classic, like, ah, hey, we're going to do abstract paintings. Oh, we're not. We're going to make conceptual art. Oh, we're not. I don't hear that very much right. from people from other schools. Yeah. I think Hunter maybe has changed. I hear that it's changed. I hear that the faculty is kind of rolling over in a new direction, like a little bit more maybe conceptual and less... Like, it had a tradition of being color field painters. I mean, a lot of those professors were great. Like, they could give you a good crit, but they didn't necessarily relate to what you're doing if it's not abstract painting. But when I was there, it felt like the kind of the camps in a way. I wasn't really aware that it's not like that at other schools. Maybe because at Hunter, there were just a lot of people that were, like, minimalist abstract painters, which maybe, like... Yale and some of the other schools don't have as much of that. I'm not sure. I think at Yale, we just had like two or three of everybody. So it was hard to get a camp. But if there had been like 20 abstract, if there had been 20 minimalists, I feel like we would have had beef. We would have had like jackets with our names on it and stuff and met out in the parking lot. But you're teaching there now. What do you do yeah. with the minimalists? So well, you're like, get out of here, I mean, you. I teach, yeah, <laughs> you must draw a must monster, a monster burger in yeah. your <laughs> abstract square. I teach like drawing 101. It's even like pre-BFA. So it's some students that are definitely going into the BFA. There's some that are like flirting with that idea. And there's some that are psychology majors. So it's a mix. But it's great. I love it. We explore a lot of different things. Talk about the art history references in a lot of the older paintings is you have an idea that's fairly planned and then the actual work is in the texture and rendering underneath. So it was like the art history paintings just sort of a way to do that. Like, oh, we'll start with the skeleton of this Venus painting and then. Honestly, I feel like it might've been like a way to try to become a better painter, which sounds like very amateurish to be like, I'm gonna do my own homage to the old masters, but it was just something I wanted to do. My ideas for composition, my ideas for arranging figures in a rectangle, all of that stuff was just coming from my head up to that point. And then like I would go see a Rubens at the Met and be like, wow, this is just like the intertwining of these animals in this hunting scene. It's amazing. I should try to see if I can bring up that kind of complexity in my own work. So that's what I was doing. And I feel like it was good and helpful and it kind of brought some of those things into my kind of toolbox of like how I can compose scenes now. Also, what about all the fiddlers and cello players? <laughs> yeah, I got really into painting wood grain in those paintings for a while. And I also really wanted to learn how to play music. And I was taking like acoustic guitar lessons just a few years ago and I was horrible at it. And that's what those paintings were. Yeah, I don't it's know. Just on your brain? Yeah, it's just a thing. I was listening to some country music and like making those paintings. I love some like mournful slide guitar. Like, it's good stuff. Yeah. Were you doing piss paintings as well? Or oh, there's, there's a piss painting. Yeah. Tell well, us about piss. That's one of the American flag paintings. So okay. in that series, there were two abstract paintings in that series. I, would, I didn't really refer to them as abstract paintings. I referred to them as like exploded monsters because that's how I saw them. In that body of work, this is 2010. There's like Jesus and the Statue of Liberty. There's George Bush. There's Uncle Sam on a camel. There's like the juggler. And then there's a few paintings where the bodies of these monsters are starting to just be ruptures. Pouring sludge of paint onto that plastic sheeting and letting that become the impetus for the form. 
So then I made one that was just a complete splatter painting that I thought was really gorgeous. And I also thought it was like an exploded monster that made sense if you're looking at those paintings kind of in a narrative, like one painting to the next in that body of work, you would see these monsters kind of disintegrating step by step and finally like rupture. So once I did the one abstract kind of rupture splatter painting, then I thought it would be interesting to make a piss painting like Andy Warhol style. So I made this one, it's called Homini Lupus, like man is a wolf to man. I don't know why I took that phrase, but it was like, mm. I, I do. Like, I like the content of that phrase and it made sense with the work. Like man is man's destroyer, man is a wolf to man. But I was also being the wolf to Warhol and like stealing his process and his idea. So I thought there was a little bit of an art historical kind of joke that was interesting there. So what I was doing though was pissing in a bucket in my studio and pouring like copper pigment and acrylic medium into it and letting that just like sit there for a couple weeks. So the copper would get really oxidized in there and then pour that onto the plastic sheeting, make the paint skin on there and then mount that onto um, the American flag in the end. So it looks like an Andy Warhol piss painting, but what's coming through the surface is the stitching of the American flag and embroidered stars. You're hanging out with a bucket of piss in your studio. Yeah, it was gross. <laughs> I kept it by the window. Yeah, I still have that piece. The two quote-unquote abstract paintings I ever made, yeah, they're in my closet. Someday they'll come out of the closet. Nice. I had a, I had a dealer once who saw a painting I did that was just a bunch of arms, and it was like a 40 by 32-inch painting or something. It was called Up in Arms. And he had it, and he was like, he had sold everything, but he like couldn't sell that piece. And he's like, it needs a face. Could you paint a face on it? And I didn't, obviously, I, like, I got that piece back, but maybe someday I pulled the abstract paintings out of the closet, paint a face on it, and then it's, as far as these dealers see it, then it's like complete. Right. It's, it's one of yours yeah, exactly. at that point. Yeah. Signature. Some socks on it. Signature, you're right, right. <laughs> but that was the one and only piss painting. All right. It's a cool trick, how copper oxidizes with piss. Did Warhol invent that? Was he the first one? Well, he was looking back at, um, old traditional sculptures where they would patina bronze with piss. So that was part of where the idea came from. Okay. Whether right. anybody else made some, I'm not sure. And I'm sure he got other people to piss. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He'd have... <laughs> now, that was a big part of it, of course, is that he would invite people over to, yeah. to pee in his studio. Yeah, there's some great photos of those being made. There's a bunch of people hanging out in the factory, having a good time and just watching some young lad piss on a canvas. Oh, that was in the Basquiat movie, come to think oh, of it. Maybe that's what I'm thinking of. Maybe it's not actually pictures. Maybe it's the movie. <laughs> Thanks to Schnabel. Thanks, Schnabel. Zach, do you feel like we're missing anything? Oh, uh, you know, you could always just be here forever. Like, why is this guy's head on fire? <laughs> <laughs> we can keep talking. I'm happy to keep talking. Why does this pirate have, like, an intestine snake coming <laughs> Which over one his you? head? Like, why is this burger made of a fractal? Fractal? I, like, Which one are you looking at? It looks like Bill Clinton and somebody doing that. Oh. Norman Rockwell. Yeah, I know which one. You know, like that Norman Rockwell homage it's, where it's like yeah. he's got a turkey that's like a fractal turkey yeah. and then just freaks everywhere. But, you know, like I know why there's freaks, really. It's because they are paintings, you know, like right. so they can just be anything. But then they're also, you know, America's freaks. It's all, it's a yeah, freak yeah. show. I think that one you're looking at is called Tea Party Nightmare. I'm looking at Freedom From Want. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, 2011. Bill Clinton figure in that. He must be like a little head. 
I'm thinking that the serving dad dude was oh, kind yeah, of yeah, Bill yeah. Clinton at first. Okay. So it's like, yeah, it's like big oh, Norman Rockwell right. Thanksgiving dinners. That's the first time I did like the turkey on the table thing, and I keep doing it. Like the first painting we talked about at the start of this interview, the turkey pistol dinner back there. Yeah, there's something satisfying about painting a dinner scene with a turkey on it. <laughs> I think part of it is that turkeys always look wrong in paintings. Mm. Like on a table, like they don't fit right. A cooked turkey just looks like this shape. There's no real proper way that it sits on the surface. It just looks like a sort of floating South Park thing, no matter what you do with it, mm. which is kind of funny. It's the worst part of Thanksgiving. <laughs> the sides are better than the turkey. You know what? That is your problem. What? <laughs> Nobody wants the turkey. I'm going to invite you over. I, I don't have a family. What am I talking about? Uh, I'm just <laughs> <No>. saying, <laughs> we'll, turkey can be good, John. We'll, turkey can be good. We'll come. We'll be your family. <laughs> we could have turducken. I don't know if I want a meal where you're present, Aaron. <laughs> <laughs> things things go wrong. <laughs> <laughs> no, but have you ever had Bring a turducken? No. Have you? Okay. Number one, I have had a turducken okay. and it was good. Number two, why haven't you done a turducken <laughs> painting? Because that just seems all like right. all you're you, all that's every single yeah. idea we've talked about, like biology, consumption, yeah. like all of it. There you go. Actually, there was a painting called turducken, but it's not like what you would think it would be. So this uh, was like right before I started working in socks, I was trying to like experiment with piling crap onto a canvas and making assemblage kind of stuff. So before the socks, I'd made this one and it's called Turducken. That's like a woman shitting out a giant shit turd monster who's like making out with her. And I don't know, I called it Turducken because it's a big turd. But he, his body is made out of a really thorny plant that I found growing out of the sidewalk in Bushwick. It was like dried thistle kind of stuff. So I took that and I just like globbed it up in tons of gel medium mixed with like shades of brown paint and it's pretty gross it was like a one-off the only thistle painting for sure that's also in the closet with the piss painting <laughs> you can't get rid of the really gross stuff no <laughs> just for you your private collection well beautiful hey that was a great discussion thanks for uh thinking it's interesting to hear me talk for a long no, time. No, it definitely sure. is. what you guys are doing. I listen to Valerie's, I listen to Trenton's. It's been good, like, studio material, working and listening to artists. I want to hear what you think of the Ted Minio one because we talked for a long time about pizza. Okay. And how <laughs> Ted Minio uses pizza. Pizza is innocent. Hmm. It's a childish motif. It's a world of imagination in his. Like, oh, it's pizza time, sure. pizza party. And in yours, like, pizza is like a sinister glob of... Gross of, America. Uh, gross America. And then in mine, it's desire. Yeah. It's just like, oh, you want that pizza. <laughs> it sounds like a good theme for an exhibition. A group show. Sure. I, I wonder if how many artists you get. Because, like, I'm sure Oldenburg must have done one, but other than him... Who else is a pizza mm. artist? <laughs> yeah, I know they're out there. They're out there. Calling Tebow all pizza artists. might have done one, but I don't think it would be as good as his cakes. Because his paintings, they're always cool. Mm. You know, and pizza is hot. Yeah, you know? it's got those pastel colors. I remember Dyke Blair did pizzas. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that seems like a kind of thing that Dyke Blair would do. Yeah, I knew this guy named Jake. But he was making these 
pizza paintings where he'd get an actual whole pizza and like shellac it with tons of shellac. Like let it like dehydrate and get all like dried out first. Uh huh. And like super shellac it and then just hang it on the wall with maybe some like tossed paint splatters on it. That's like all I can remember. Shows right coming now. together. Uh-huh. Shows coming together. Well, we're going to have to do some Googling and come yes. back to each other with this. Aaron, thanks again. Thank you. Thanks, John. Thanks, Zach. It's fun. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Weed Art. Check out our guest, Aaron Johnson's latest work at A Group Show with Rebecca Morgan and James Enzor at the Spring Break Art Show in Times Square, New York. Also in March, he has a solo show at Sebastian Adrian Gallery, Paris, called Turkey Pistol Dinner. In September, you can see his solo show in Copenhagen at the Gallery Polson. And in November, at the Aishonanzuka Gallery in Hong Kong, where he has a two-person show with Christian Rex Van Minen. If you want to see images, of some of the artists that we reference, you should check out our Instagram page or our Facebook page at Weed Art. Also, John has... I've been working on the book for the past few years. The book is called The Puerto Rican War. It's entirely carved in wood. It tells of the progress of how Puerto Rican revolutionaries tried to kill the president. You can support this podcast by liking us on Facebook and Twitter at We Eat Art. You can also rate us on iTunes. Please subscribe or tell a friend. We also have a Patreon set up. Please consider helping us with whatever you can. Then you will be one of our supporters at patreon.com slash weed art all one word we have goodies available for donors weed art is produced by papen and mnemonic recordings is that hard to say definitely our sound producer engineer and editor is justin asher with help from colin wamscans we have to figure out a way to end the show in like a elegant manner thank you Oh,